This is one of the most extraordinary paradigm shifts, you know, revolutions in scientific thought, scientific paradigms that we've seen in human history. How do you deal with the fact that 25% of the number of muscles and bones in your body are from the ankle down? No, this is the information that we need healthcare professionals to be talking about. Someone asked me, how do you run for 10 hours a day? Right? Well, firstly, learn to stand for 10 hours a day. At this point, we're struggling to get movement calories. The quality of, movement of the, those calories is not even really being discussed. How many people, youngsters going in to do exams, people going in to do a public talk, stressful situations that they come across and they respond to the stressful situation with hyperventilation. They respond with faster breathing. They respond with harder breathing. They respond with mouth breathing, with irregular breathing patterns. What is that telling the brain? It's telling the brain that the body is under threat. Hi and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Steve here. Dave is away um, traveling in Belgium with his wife and two kids. So welcome to the journey with Steve here where we explore many of the untapped secrets to health. So before I dive in, and talk and intro it, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to take a deep breath, fill your lungs to their fullest capacity and slowly breathe out. Repeat it and just do it once more. And just reflect while you're doing this. Do you instinctively breathe through your nose or your mouth? Okay, great. Now for the next exercise. This one is perhaps not everyone can do, depending on where you are. But if you can, wherever you are, just try to sit in the ground, not a chair. Put your ass straight in the floor in whatever position you want. And please sit like this until I ask you to stand up. Yes. So while you're sitting, you probably might be asking yourself, where am I going with this or what's happening? So just to create context, ever since we were 21 and said goodbye to alcohol, adopted a plant-based diet, we've been fascinated with health in its many facets. We began to realize that our current health system, our current modality of living in the West is not necessarily geared toward preventative measures. Health or the medical system at large is much more about providing pills or bandage to cover up as opposed to dealing with the root cause of the underlying issues. These days, most of us are aware of this, and to some extent, the health system is much better talking about the benefits of diet and movement for your overall health. However, is this enough, we ask you? No is the answer we've discovered. And in this series, we've taken experts or excerpts from some of the greatest progressive minds out there, from doctors and specialists who've dug deeper and really pushed the limit to uncover the root causes of many of society's ailments, from the everyday aches and pains that have been a given to much more serious life-threatening ailments. What are some of these we discovered? Well, first, let's get you off the ground. But before you stand up, make a point of taking note of all the muscles, ligaments, and just the sophisticated nature of your body that so often we take for granted. Do you reckon throughout your day you're using all these muscles and ligaments? Now, to get back to your breath, when you breathe, did you inhale and exhale through your mouth or through your nose? Or did you do it through both? Would you believe me if I said that one was far healthier than the other? Well, let me stop talking. Let's get straight to the answers. To kick things off, let's start with your breath and the one and only incredible Patrick McKeown. Many people think that breathing oxygen is good and CO2 is bad. I wonder, can we first just talk about that? Because they actually are vitally, it's almost like two They're sides of the one yang. coin, yin and yang. And I just wonder mm. if you could talk about mm. that briefly Mr. as an intro, as a starter to the, the, the meal yeah. of breath. Yeah, it's like somebody said to me a few years ago, he says, Patrick, he says, they couldn't have all got it wrong. And I said, I actually think they have got it wrong. Every medical textbook that you read, you'll see a section about carbon dioxide. You'll see the Bohr effect mentioned in it. You'll see the oxygen dissociation curve, especially when it has a section in respiratory physiology. 
But yet people who are teaching breathing don't seem to be aware of these effects. So when we breathe in oxygen, oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood. 98.5% of oxygen is carried bound by hemoglobin. So that's a protein within the red blood cells. But carbon dioxide is a factor that when carbon dioxide increases in the blood, hemoglobin releases oxygen to the tissues. And carbon dioxide also dilates your blood vessels. So when people say the more air you breathe, the better, that's not correct. Because if you breathe too much air, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. This in turn causes your blood vessels to constrict and this causes hemoglobin to hold on to oxygen more strongly. So the more air you breathe, the less oxygen that's delivered throughout the body. I love Patrick's analogy of LSD, light, slow and deep. So breathing lightly is actually better. Fascinating. I think most of us would assume getting a good inhale would be the best way to pump oxygen around your body. Patrick continues with more on the importance of breathing lightly. I came across it in a newspaper article and it spoke about breathing light, breathing lightly or breathing less air and breathing in and out through the nose. I practiced it and I could feel the temperature of my fingers increasing within about two to three minutes. And whenever we give a talk and we have people do the exercise, the vast majority of people can experience increased watery saliva in the mouth, improved temperature of their fingers within a very short period of time. And that's the power of the breath. We have 50,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. We can influence our blood circulation by the volume of air that we breathe. So what are the fundamentals to become a better breather? It's something that so many of us take for granted and we think, oh, we're born and we know how to breathe. But like anything in life, we can improve on it. And the more we improve on it, the more it can affect our overall well-being so much. The first fundamental is in and out through the nose. I was a chronic mouth breather. If you breathe through your mouth, you're more likely to be breathing faster. You're more likely to breathe using the upper chest. Upper chest breathing and faster breathing, your body is telling the brain that the body is under threat. So that puts you into that increased stress response. And chronic stress then can contribute to inflammation. So your breathing, by changing your breathing, you can change your physiology. But if we have a poor breathing pattern, it can negatively affect your physiology. And it's very easy to assess breathing. Okay, breathing itself can be complex in terms of it's multidimensional. So it's not just about the biomechanics. It's not just about whether you're using your diaphragm correctly. It's also about the biochemistry. And it's about the effect of psychology and the physiology and how one is playing off the other. So normally researchers look at breathing from three different dimensions. But the first thing that I would say to anybody when it comes to breathing is the importance of breathing in and out through the nose, both during rest, during physical exercise. Now, I'm not saying do a sprint with your mouth closed. But if you're jogging, if you're doing low to moderate physical exercise with the mouth closed, sorry, if you're doing low to moderate physical exercise, do it with your mouth closed and sleep. We should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. Now, I would say that 50% of the people who are listening are waking up with a dry mouth in the morning. They're more likely to snore. They're more likely to have stopping of the breath called sleep apnea. They're more likely to have insomnia, disrupted sleep. They're more likely to get up to go to the bathroom during the middle of the night. And even the simple thing of having to get up to go to the bathroom during the middle of the night, your sleep has been disrupted. Now, the implications of this for children is even more than for adults. Thought I'd stop here for a sec. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? I'd heard of the importance of nasal breathing at night for snoring, etc. Dave's been taping his mouth for years, and I know that sounds maybe like it's like he's being a hostage or there's something kind of kinky about it, but he's kind of gotten the habit of doing it, and he is to encourage to breathe through his nose. But I wasn't aware of the importance for exercise until, of course, we did this podcast and our podcast with the wonderful James Network. 
James Nestor, sorry, another sleep genius. Have you ever tried running and nasal breathing? We've been trying to do it more of late and it's not as easy as you think because like so often for us when we run, it's a social activity. We're up right ahead. We're having the chats. It's it's as much about connection as it is exercise. But there's a wonderful meditative quality of trying to breathe like through your nose and exhale and it's pretty hard and the one thing that i notice is at when you're nasal breathing while running you actually have to use the lower part of your lungs like it's only when you stop kind of chest breathing and actually go deeper into your diaphragm that this is where the kind of the balance is and it's quite hard to do our friend tony riddle and um, he who you'll hear later from he kind of breathes with his with his his um his step the cadence of a step so he's like <laughs> Like, Tony has all sorts of rhythms. He'll even do to songs. Like, Tony is just a hero of this. Anyway, I'm sure you want to hear more about this and how the particular affects children, how this particularly affects children. So back to Patrick. So there was a study by Karen Bonnock that was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2012. She looked at 11,000 British school children in a, a town called Stratford-upon-Avon. And she looked at them over 57 months. She concluded that children with sleep disorders at age five, if untreated, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Wow. The baby's brain is developing during slow wave sleep. And if that baby's sleep is disrupted, that will affect the development of the brain. Now, this is published in the literature. So that's children. Adults, we know the link between poor sleep, sleep disorders, and mental health. Anybody who was coming in through my door and they're coming in with depression, they're coming in with anxiety, they're coming in with panic disorder. We can't just look at their breathing, but we also have to look at their sleep because we have to consider that the human being is not separate functions. Mm. There is a bi-directional relationship between each. You know, there's so many different breathing practices out there. And the one that most people are familiar and is really like caught on is Wim Hof. Wim is an incredibly um, charismatic leader, leader and he's wild and he's just like zeitgeist and like just remarkable character. And Wim typically, the majority of his or what he's best known for is ice baths and breathing to kind of help create a lot of internal heat and this. However, there's many different types of breathing techniques and all of them can bring something different. And I'm going to say that not all breathing exercises are the same. It's really important that if anybody is practicing breathing exercises, know what the breathing exercises are doing. There's a way if you want to downregulate, you can do that. I can go through that with you. There's also a way to upregulate. So there's times when we are stressed. How do you downregulate? How and, do you change your physiology? to kind of slow down and calm down everything. Down, 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 yes, yeah. exactly. And this, the science over this over the last 30 years is that the vagus nerve, which is wandering throughout the human body, innervating most of the major organs, if not all of them, that 80 to 90% of the communication by the vagus nerve is from the body up to the brain. And by changing our breathing patterns, we can stimulate the vagus nerve, which secretes a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which causes the heart rate to slow down. And when the heart rate slows down, the brain interprets that the body is safe. Now, how many people, youngsters going in to do exams, people going in to do a public talk, stressful situations that they come across and they respond to the stressful situation with hyperventilation. They respond with faster breathing. They respond with harder breathing. They respond with mouth breathing, with irregular breathing patterns. What is that telling the brain? It's telling the brain that the body is under threat and all the brain wants to do is get you out of that situation. You're going into the fight or flight response. How many people, their performance has been sabotaged, not by their ability, but by their 
lack of knowledge when it came to changing their physiology. And even if it's just making a public speech, you there's a time there that you want to be able to downregulate, that you can activate the body's relaxation response, but then going out to give your talk that you can upregulate. Mm. And the one thing about the breath is just, it's not just about paying attention to breathing. It's not just about doing breathing exercises that you hear in a yoga studio. It goes way beyond that. And I think one thing that has held breathing back is because it has been taught so incorrectly for decades. Now, I'm not going to make the claim that I know all the answers, but what I have seen over the last 20 years needs to get out there. That breathing is more than just this focus on the diaphragm. Do you know that breathing through your nose versus your mouth even affects your dental health and the shape of your face? Because many people think breathing is just breathing and it's just something that's a reflex and just happens. But it's so influential, like any little thing. I, I always love that expression. How you do one thing is how you do everything. And I think breathing epitomizes that, that it's something that we take for granted. We do it so subconsciously or unaware. And as soon as you become aware of it, you realize, wow, it has a massive impact on everything. You know, and dentists will know about this. If you were to go into your dentist next week and you ask your dentist, do the patients who walk in with their mouth open and persistently breathe to an open mouth, do they have worse dental health than nose breathers? And the dentist, if the dentist is observant at all, the dentist will say yes, because saliva is a natural anti-plaque agent. And if we have the mouth open, and if we are breathing through it, the mouth is dry. And this is influencing pH in the mouth. Bacteria is more rampant. Gum disease is more rampant. Dental cavities is more rampant. And even during childhood, the child who has the mouth open because of their tongue not resting in the roof of the mouth, it causes abnormal development to the face and also to the airway. So the child with the mouth open will have a face like me. The maxilla, which is the top jaw, is too set back. The mandible is too set back. The airway is compromised. The nose is crooked. And there's a deviated septum. And these are the facial features that are common with children who persistently mouth breed. And I was in Denmark, when was it, about 10 days ago. And sometimes you're, you're in a restaurant, you're just standing in the queue and you see a lovely looking kid that has the potential to have a beautiful face. And I think this kid was about 15 or 16. And she was there with the mouth open and the chin was set back. And I was saying this could have been avoided. You know, this is the information that we need healthcare professionals to be talking about because the reality is they are not trained in breathing. They know very little about breathing. And they don't even emphasize the importance of breathing to the nose. And I'm going to come full circle on that. Your mouth does absolutely nothing when it comes to breathing. There is no function of the mouth that plays any role in terms of improving the airflow, moistening and humidifying and regulating volume and harnessing nasal nitric oxide. Mouth breathing is a stress response. We have to come back to that. But it's not just about keeping your mouth closed either. You know, you can improve your breathing patterns as well. And we continue more on dental health. Probably the first or one of the first books on nutrition was written by a dentist called Dr. Weston Price. It's called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It was written and published, I think, in 1938. He did groundbreaking work and he went to different civilizations. He went to Maoris and he went to Eskimos. He went to Swiss people, Gaelic people living off the Hebride Islands. And he asked what happens when these civilizations change from their traditional diet over to the Western processed diet, children became mouthbreeders and it happened in one generation. But not only did children become mouthbreeders, children started having crooked teeth. You know, we as a species shouldn't have overcrowding of teeth. The animal world, there isn't overcrowding of teeth. 
If you walk into a, a classroom today, I'd say 75% of the kids in there will require braces. That's not just saying that the teeth are overcrowded. The problem there is that the jaw is too small. So now, because of poor nutrition, mouth breathing associated with that, and we don't know what came first. Uh, we poor, don't always know and by that. by poor nutrition, you kind of mean that, like, chewing. Like, you know, the way they say... I like think that's definitely food. a factor. That, but that, also... Like, that like you know the way you lift muscle you lift weights to build muscles and yes. chewing is almost like mouth muscles like by chewing on fiber as in like raw carrots or that type of thing that's certainly a factor now you can even go one step further and this would be say to the importance of breastfeeding because breastfeeding is not just about nutrition but breastfeeding is for the manipulation of the muscles of the face that are necessary for the growth of the face so for a baby for example to take the milk from the mother the baby has to do a certain amount of work. So already the muscle building is happening with young infancy. Now, there's so much pressure on mothers to get back into the workforce. You know, we see that very few families can have a mother at home here in Ireland, for example. Mm. So there's a lot of societal pressure on mothers to get back in, to be paying money, to be paying mortgages, etc. And a bottle then is introduced. But the baby can just take the milk from the bottle. Even if it's breast milk in the bottle, the baby still isn't getting the adequate growth or development of the face as a result of that. Now, then there's a whole wave in terms of baby led weaning. And I think it was um, Jill Ripley, I think she wrote a book on it. And she spoke about her ancestors that, you know, if you go into a supermarket, everything for kids is pureed. It's so soft and it's not giving children, young children, the ability to exercise and develop their jaws. So Jill Ripley coined the phrase baby-led weaning. And then there's Professor John Mew in the UK and his son, Dr. Mike Mew, both orthodontists. For the past 50 years, they have been talking about the importance of nose breathing and correct tongue resting posture, but correct chewing for the development of the face. And it comes back to this. If you want to have a really well-proportioned face, and it's not just about having a good-looking face, but it's having a functional face because the face that grows longer and narrower with overcrowding of teeth and setback of the jaws. The problem there is that the airway is compromised. Well, breathing is the most vital function. And we know that because how soon does the organism perish when you switch it off? And with breathing, we can only last for just a few minutes. The airway in the human being is getting smaller. And if you look at the work of Dr. Kevin Boyd, um, James Nestor, of course, did some research on this. We've been talking about it for the last 10, 15 years, and it's really vitally important. And this is where breathing goes way beyond breathing. This is going, and I could even say that we are dependent on survival of the species. We are now getting it wrong, and we're going backwards instead of forwards. Further into the episode, we discuss the effects breathing can have on asthma and his own backstory. I sometimes I wonder about asthma, have we overcomplicated it? And I'm going to give you just this example. The Ukrainian doctor, Konstantin Buteyko, said that people with asthma, they shouldn't be breathing in and out through the mouth. Okay, that makes sense. If you breathe through your nose, your nose and your nasal cavity and the paranasal sinuses produce a gas called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide was first discovered from the exhaled breath of the human being in 1991. Nitric oxide is antiviral. It's antibacterial. It helps open up the airways, the bronchioles, so that gas exchange can take place. It also helps to open up the blood vessels in the lungs. It's known since 1988 by a researcher called Swift. And this has been written about by an ear, nose and throat doctor called Dr. James Bartley from New Zealand. 
that when individuals switch from mouth to nose breathing and continuously breathe through their nose, the pressure of oxygen in the blood increases by 10%. That's the PO2 in millimeters of mercury. Now, many asthma, people with asthma and kids with asthma persistently mouth breathe because the inflammation of the lungs travels up to the nose. So when we think of a normal airway, now, if you think of, we take air in through, ideally in through the nose, and that air is going to pass down the throat and the trachea, the bronchi, and there's 23 branches of airways getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And these airways then run into small little air sacs called alveoli. And I think there's about 500 million small air sacs in the lungs. The problem with asthma is that the pipes narrow. So it makes breathing more difficult. And that's because of inflammation. It can be triggered. Inflammation is definitely a part of it. There's also smooth muscle in the airway, which constricts. And there's also some people will have increased secretion of mucus. So basically the pipes. So in order for the air, the oxygen to go from our nose into the blood, but some of the pipes are getting blocked. And asthma is reversible. Now, if you have your mouth closed, your nose is going to moisten the incoming air and warm the incoming air. There's less of a, a likelihood of the airways constricting. So nose breathing alone will improve gas exchange. Um, it will improve oxygen delivery from the, the lungs into the blood. It will also help to protect the airways in terms of keeping them more open because of nitric oxide, because of warming, because of moisture. Compare this to mouth breathing. Now, many people with asthma and children are mouth breathing. The reason being is because their nose is stuffy. Because it's not just that we have an upper airway and a lower airway. It's one airway. Whatever happens in the lungs will travel up to the nose and vice versa. And this is recognized since 2007. So people with asthma invariably are more likely to have a stuffy nose. As a result, then they don't feel comfortable breathing through the nose, so they breathe through the open mouth. They take cold, unfiltered, dry air straight into their lungs, and it feeds into their bronchospasm. Now, I was 20 years with asthma in this country. I was hospitalized in Conley Hospital. I was hospitalized three times. I had a nose operation in 1994 to help me breathe easier through the nose. Nobody told me to breathe through my nose. And even after the nasal surgery, I continued mouth breathing. 95, 96, 97, 98, until I read about it in either the news, in, it was either in the Irish Times or the Irish Independent. I can't actually remember which, which paper I read it in, but I remember reading this article and I, I came across it then a second time. So it wasn't just, it took me a little bit as well to kind of get the, 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 the real reasoning behind this. And I was a guy that was caught for breath. I had air hunger. I would have a regular breathing. My pulse rate was quite high. My concentration was terrible. I left school at 14 years of age, never to go back. And I left school out of a total frustration with the education system. I was the kid that was going into school, sitting in class, not able to pay attention to the teacher. Now, I went to a school called St. Declan's in Cabra. So I'm sure plenty of people know about it. I wasn't going to leave school to be a waster. I wanted to have my own retail shop. And I was working as a trainee shop manager. Now, the shop then was sold. This was a shop in Lumboyne. And then I went back to school because I had no other choice. So I went back to school and I said, I'm going to get the points. And I said, I said one, only one university I wanted to get into, and that was TCD. And I worked my butt off because when you have poor concentration and poor sleep, you need drive and determination to get there. Most kids are not going to do that. I did it out of a sense of, I don't know, not frustration, but want. I always wanted to have financial stability. That was always a goal of mine. Not to be a millionaire or anything like that, but just to have no stress over money. That was my goal. And here's my point. 
when you have asthma, you don't just have asthma. You're also more likely to have poor sleep. And in the literature, as asthma severity increases, so does sleep disorder breathing. This is where concentration, focus, attention span, mood, and stress levels change. So people with asthma, especially if their asthma is out of control, as I said, it's not just a problem related to the lungs. Now, the frustrating part about this is nobody wants to know. And I will say that, that the authorities do not want to know about the importance of nose breathing when it comes to asthma. I've been involved with <coughs> 20. There has been 20 clinical trials. I've been involved with about five of those clinical trials. Even some clinical trials, they used my book, which is about 10 euro, called Close Your Mouth. I wrote it back in 2004. Close Your Mouth. Yes. I love the name. That's Straight brilliant. to the point. And even that, by just by individuals reading the book and applying it from the book, they got results. Now, you think that our healthcare system should be all about the person and should be about giving these kids, and especially the children and the adults, tools to help themselves. And it hasn't happened. There has been a total resistance about the importance of breathing, even though the trials are there. If you didn't think you heard enough about the benefits of breathing for your health, now let's take a look at what it does to your performance. Breathing now, I suppose, for me, it's the health aspect is about 50% of the work we do, and then 50% then is high performance. Like, I'll give you one example. Recently enough, I was working with snipers, and I was brought... Snipers as in people who shoot people... Well, yeah, they are. They're like they're they're, they're highly skilled. They're highly skilled. Yes, yeah. I'm and I know I, I mentioned it. To, I mentioned it to somebody. who said that that's hardly spiritual. Well, I was only thinking to myself, yeah, it is hardly spiritual. But at the same time, if I was a hostage in a cafe, I would love to have a sniper outside. So I'm talking about snipers in the police forces, and it's not. It's a police force here in Europe. Yeah, I was brought in to show how to breathe while they were pulling the trigger of a gun. And I was brought back twice. So it wasn't just the first time just saying, okay, it's a load of nonsense. No, no. Train their guys and then come back and did another group training with another. This is the, how physiology and it's in training changes. training them to how to downregulate. As Correct. they can be to, totally focused to on when to pull the triggers. So, so yes. slow down to slow down the parasympathetic nervous system. So, so the autonomic nervous system is calm and tranquil and they can just feel good and then go pew. Pretty much, because when you're pulling the trigger of a gun... And that's a metaphor for life, really, in terms of to be able to do whatever anyone's doing. This is this, that, what I'm using. Yeah. This is an example yeah. of the how you can downregulate. So you can imagine an individual on a very hot day. Their heart rate is going to be elevated. There's a situation, as there's a stress response. Their breathing is faster and their heart rate is elevated. The time to pull the trigger is in between your heartbeats. But if your heart rate is beating at about 140 beats per minute, you don't have much of a time between heartbeats. So what we want to do is we want to show how to slow down the speed of the heartbeat by changing breathing. It's all in the exhalation. It's not in the inhalation. So when we breathe in, the vagus nerve steps back. So it's almost that the foot has taken off the brake pedal. The exhalation is when the foot is put on the brake. So if you breathe out fast, your body is telling the brain that the body is under threat. And even if there's a situation, no matter if it's in the family home, if it's in the corporate world, no matter where you are, anytime you get into a difficult situation, think of your exhalation. Don't breathe out fast. Don't breathe upper chest if you can help it. Don't mouth breathe because that's activating the fight or flight response. So coming back to the snipers, they're lying down. They're taking a soft breath in through the nose. 
and are having a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. And the time to pull the trigger is towards the bottom of the exhalation because this is when the vagus nerve has kicked in, acetylcholine is secreted, the heart rate is slowing down, the timing between heartbeats is increased and you pull the trigger in between the timing of the heartbeat. Now wow. that law, that's just a normal physiological response. Now I can say that even if I never taught breathing to anybody, the very benefit of being able to change your states in a difficult situation is a tremendous tool we have. We all have it, but very few people know about it. And mm. I think of all of those kids that come out of universities and are going into stressful environments, they're going into, and there's a lot of pressure on them. And I was in that corporate world originally because that's where I was before I changed careers. I couldn't handle it. And you know, it's not just that the corporation is at fault. It's not that the corporation is at fault. My physiology was at fault. My physiology wasn't up to handle with the pressure that's required Almost like in a modern society. Was your resilience and was compromised. That's exactly due it. To your breathing. That's exactly and, it. And, and for anyone listening, so like what I hear is that like we can all control how we feel and we experience stressful, challenging things through life and that our breath is our ability to make us more resilient. And one of the keys that I heard is in the exhale. And if we mouth breathe, our exhale is going to be a lot shorter. Whereas if, we're, if we nasal breathe, the reason why when we exhale, it's more, it's harder to get it out. Yes. So it has to be a longer exhale. Yes. And, and it's when we have a lot, and I'm more just saying this, just so that you'll say if I'm right or wrong, if I want to kind of relax down, just that more um, kind of calm, safe state into my parasympathetic parasympathetic state it's having a long exhale and that's yes. that's the down regulation yes so ultimately it's about having a really soft and gentle and prolonged exhalation because when we have a soft and gentle and prolonged exhalation the body is telling the brain that everything is okay we have to think that our breathing and our stress levels are almost hardwired throughout our evolution and human beings we're pretty good at coping with short-term stressors We've had hundreds of thousands of years of short-term stressors. This is the whole fight or flight mechanism. We are not good at coping with long-term stress. Long-term stress causes people to get sick. That's the reality of it. So it's that ability. Now, I would say to improve resilience on two levels. Very often people who are not well, either mentally or physically, they're already in that increased stress response. So they're in that increased sympathetic drive and they've got reduced parasympathetic tone. And the word is resilience, because if you were to measure heart rate variability, they will have reduced heart rate variability for that person. We use breathing exercises and nose breathing and sleep with good breathing and sleep and breathing go together. If you have your mouth open, you're more likely to have a stress response during sleep as opposed to recovery. Long term, we want to bring that person into balance in the autonomic nervous system because in balance, then it's about resilience. This is our ability to cope with a stressful situation. This is our ability to run after a bus. This is our ability to adapt to the changing needs of the environment that our body adapts to that, but we recover very quickly. That's resilient. Whereas if you have an individual that the autonomic nervous system is very much in that stress response, they don't have a good coping mechanism. So long-term, what I want to do is, and regardless of the individual, I wrote a book and I was looking at even conditions that I never associated that there was a link with breathing. Diabetes type 1, for example. Diabetes type 2. Epilepsy. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome. These are conditions that you would think, how on earth is breathing going to play a role? 
Well, these individuals are in an increased stress response, but the body is not setting up the ideal grounds for recovery. Mm. How can we help a disease if we're in a stress response? Because ultimately, to help even to improve that condition, we have to set up the ideal foundation. And the ideal foundation is when the autonomic nervous system is more unbalanced. And autonomic means automatic. Correct. And what, yes. um, and so what I'm getting from that is that uh, like healing and restoration and homeostasis happens when we're in balance, which is really true nasal breathing and not being in this stressful have, situation, breathing through the mix. Like it's amazing the impact on breath and your nervous system, your performance. We end here in a final note, which is so important on stress and how to downregulate us and take yourself from the sympathetic system into the parasympathetic, which is a fancy word to into rest, restore and digest. I think that so many people are stressed and they don't even they're not aware of it because our education system in some ways have really trained us how to be thinking and to be analytical. And we've put all of this emphasis on the thinking mind, but that we've lost a connect with the body that we're not in tune of when we are getting stressed. And even just to pay attention on your breathing, to get your attention out of the head, but even to go beyond this, because when you do, for example, a very light and slow breathing, you're increasing blood flow to the brain. This is helping to calm the brain. It calms the central nervous system. And this is known since 1924. And it also reduces nerve cell excitability. Now, new paradigms coming nerve out in mental health. excitability. I've never heard of that. It so sounds cool. cool, though. We have... Easy. I love when my nerves are excited. <laughs> I love it. No, no, you don't want to. I don't know what it is. When really. your brain cells are all over the place and firing electrical signals that are random it's going to generate a little bit of a stress response it can contribute to epilepsy with some people panic disorder so we have 81 billion nerve cells in the brain and they are communicating each nerve cell i think is communicating with about fifteen thousand other nerve cells so you've got all of this activity going on in the brain and our breathing and carbon dioxide is influencing the activity of the nerve cell neuronal excitability when you breathe slow, you have a calming effect because of the increased blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. If you hyperventilate, so for example, there's a very popular breathing technique, the Wim Hof method yeah. at the moment. So many people will be practicing. It's all about upregulation. Yeah. You know, there's a few points to that we'd like holes. to make. And, and so upregulate means kind of bringing yourself adrenaline up to excite adrenaline where you're more like charged up, you're ready yes. for a fight a stress or a match or some sort of... Yeah, so the theory behind it would be that like we've been doing breath holes for a long, long time as well. We didn't have hyperventilation beforehand, but there's two ways to stress the body. Now, first of all, I'll come back to the relaxation. There's a few ways to activate the body's relaxation response. One is the light breathing, under breathing that we did earlier on. Another is slow breathing, and slow breathe with silent breathing. And especially when you slow down the respiratory rate to six breaths per minute, in between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. So six breaths is a good average. That would be breathing in for five seconds and breathing out for five seconds. And then low breathing. And I use the acronym LSD. Light is about breathing from a biochemical dimension. Light is in sound. Like it's not like... <laughs> it's exactly. More like it's, it's almost that when you're breathing as light, it should be undetectable. Yeah. And if you were to look at ancient traditions, that there are sayings that your breathing should be so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. Well, I remember oh, when my kids were really little, you know, when they're little babies and you're yes. like, are they still alive? You know, you're like, you, you are stressing. You don't know if they're breathing or not because it's just so 
circle yes. and well, soft. That is really what you want in a baby. You don't want to hear any baby breathing during sleep because if you hear their breathing during sleep, it's a sign that there's resistance to their breathing. Mm. And that's going to take them out of that slow wave sleep. And remember earlier on, we talked mm. about development brain of the development brain. And, exactly. Yeah. So coming back to this, nose breathing, light breathing, slow breathing and deep breathing. And when I talk LSD, about deep breathing, right. I'm talking about just movement or recruitment of the diaphragm. This is LSD, low, slow, light, low, sorry, light, light slow, slow, deep, light, deep. Soft, light, yes. soft and deep. Yes, okay. light, no, even light. Slow, slow is when you're focusing on reducing the respiratory rate. So four to six deep. breaths per minute. 4.5 to, to six. And it, it's not that you have to breathe like that 24 hours a day, but you're doing it for, say, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. You know, because even when you do breathing exercises, the benefits of a carry-on be beyond the breathing exercise. Like, I will do formal breathing exercises some days, and there's days that I don't do them. But if I go for a walk, I don't want to go for a walk with my attention stuck in my head. I don't want to be living in thought all the time because when you're in that critical thinking mode, you're more likely to be stressed. And even just having that connection with the breath, that you're taking your attention out of your mind onto your breathing, but you're actively slowing down your breathing and changing your physiology. Like this is going beyond mindfulness. Mindfulness is not going to work for the very person who needs it. And I'll tell you this why. I'll tell you why. Because when you're in a state of emotional turmoil, or if you have a mind that is so agitated, the last thing that you want to do is to amplify those thinking, that thinking. Instead, what I want to do when if somebody has anxiety, I want to give them simple tools that they can change their physiology and calm their physiology and then have focus on the breath, have focus on the body, have focus on the mind, bring your attention into the present moment that you're fully absorbed in what you're doing. So that's the relaxation part of it. The stress part of it is anytime that you want to stress the body, breathe fast and hard. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you to sit in the ground and take note, note of your movements as you stand up. Something you might not often do, sit in the ground and kind of engage your hips and kind of open up. It just might be uncomfortable to you. And many people, they can think, I'm not sitting in the ground. I'm not a peasant. Like, why would I do that? Like, why wouldn't I sit in a chair? Myself and Dave um, have been very conscious of movement over the last number of years. For 15 years, we did Ashtanga Yoga, the primary series of that most days. We became super flexible in loads of ways and in other ways became really rigid and quite like dogmatics, yoga is the only way. And over the last kind of decade, we've really tried to broaden our horizon and kind of get into calisthenics, into handstands, into gymnastics, into swimming in the sea, into running, trying to mix up our movement, playing frisbee in the park with friends, anything that would get us moving our body in different ways. Because we realized like one of the key factors is just variety, diversity makes us much more resilient. Um, but we, like many other people in recent years, have started to just focus on 10,000 steps because it's a much easier method or message for people to digest. Okay, movement, get 10,000 steps. We might practice more ourselves, but we rarely preach it. However, after talking to the amazing Katie Bauman, we've developed a whole new perspective. Katie is a biomechanist, best-selling author, speaker, and leader in the movement space. She's a total hero, someone that I just admire in so many different ways because she's a great practitioner and really provides bite-sized practical things that you can apply to your daily life. Kathy talks, or Katie talks about two separate things here, the difference between movement and exercise. So... I mean, just the difference between exercises and movement. So we're all on the same page, you know, like movement is just like the biggest giant circle of a diagram. You can label it movement and it's just any time you change the shape of your body or even the tissues within your body. Right. Because we're, we even just tend to think of 
of my whole person having to move from point A to point B, but there's lots of more subtle movements that can happen of just, you know, you, you, um, sitting on the ground and having, you know, rocks push up into your body. That's a movement. Like your skin and tissue has to accommodate something bumpy. Right. And so for most of us who sit all the time on something cushioned, that would be a movement we're not used to. We're not used to texture. We're not used to texture underneath our feet. We're not used to texture on any parts of our body because everything that we put our body on is covered in something soft and cushiony. We've made everything cushioned. So movement can be any, any, any time your cells have to change shape in your body, but exercise is this really specific type of movement. Exercise is a type of movement. So it's not either, or it's a subcategory. So subcategory is just, if you have this big circle diagram movement, there's a smaller circle inside of that labeled exercise and exercise is by clinical definition, it's any, any, any sort of movement that you do, first off, you have to do it just for the purpose of in, improving your well-being. There's an intention there. Like I'm, I'm trying to make myself healthier or to test better on health or fitness um, measures. You've decided usually for the period of time you're going to do it or the distance you're going to do it. So it's, it's got some structure to it. I'm, I'm going to do it for 30 minutes. I'm going to do it for five miles. Like you've got a mode, what you're going to do. You're picking, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to walk. I'm going to take a yoga class. And it's usually sort of rhythmic in nature. These are the things that make uh, a certain type of movement fit into this category exercise. And then there's a broader, there's a broader category still that still sits within movement. So you've got movement as a bigger circle. Physical activity is actually less specific than exercise. That's just you doing types of movement that usually use your musculoskeletal system and, and burn some sort of calories while you're doing it. Like they have to be some sort of KCAL expenditure, but it does not have to be done specifically to improve your physical fitness. So for people who are active commuters, you know, you ride your bike to work, that's not necessarily exercise. You're using it as transportation, but it's still, it still uses your musculoskeletal system, burns calories, build muscle, et cetera. So, so I'm just trying to get people to think a little bit broader than exercise because we are so sedentary um, culturally that ex to exercise every day seems like a ton of movement, but relatively speaking to the human timeline and and the physical, the mechanical environment our bodies evolved in, we, we are capable and really require a tremendous amount more movement than an hour a day. And it really needs to be distributed better throughout the day. There's a benefit to that distribution. Katie continues further to break down the difference between exercise and movement and why movement is so necessary for our overall health in so many ways. It's, it, it comes down to the nuance of understanding. Um, movement science or exercise science. Like we're so used to thinking about um, movement as a whole person state. Like I'm either moving or I'm not, I'm exercising or I'm not. But, <clears throat> but I like to also bring in, like there's this idea of like your parts all need individual movement as well. So, so you have the need to move your whole person, but you also have the need to move all of your individual parts. And so for many people who can get physically fit. Like there are many people who can be physically fit, but they will still not necessarily be fully well. 
Um, so I'll just explain like my experience, like I have really two, two types of people who will come to me. I mean, they're all the same type of person, but they have different habits. There are people who are fairly inactive and they're noticing problems arise in their body. And then I've got the very active who have problems arising in their body, like musculoskeletal problems, you know, problems of the joints. And so, so for a long time, the idea was like, if you just exercised every day, you would be you know, like, that would, that would really improve your health beyond not exercising. But what they found was like, wow, people who exercise, but still sit the rest of the time, um, aren't as healthier as much healthier, like they don't have like fewer surgeries necessarily or other things as someone who doesn't do any exercises. Why? So like my, my sort of background in biomechanics was bringing up this idea of you, yes, you need to move your whole person to get the protective benefits of exercise or movement, but you also need to make sure all of your parts are being moved well in order to reap the benefits. And so for people who are extremely active through the mode of exercise, I, I liken it sort of to diet. <clears throat> they tend to do the same types of movements again and again and again. So they're eating nutritious food, but, but as you I'm sure know, food, good food, a good food, it can be the best food, <clears throat> but it doesn't meet all of your needs. Like a healthy diet consists of different types of good foods because you need a spectrum of dietary nutrients and the same goes for movement so a lot of people have the modes of exercise that they love but so but their movement diet overall is poor because let's say they only eat movement kale right it's kale is great but it cannot make up your entire movement diet you're going to need some other movement equivalents to good foods so that you're not missing key nutrients in certain body parts so like i meet a lot of people who are they're like cellularly sedentary in certain areas, despite being otherwise fit. Like their whole bodies are fit. They're meeting their fitness tests, but they're having these spots in their body that aren't getting a broad amount of movement. And it shows up as pain or it shows up as an injury to one spot. And so I just like, we can think of our bodies as a garden or as a, as a diet, something broader than, than a single plant or a single food movement works in the same way. And you want to make sure your movement habits are watering your whole bodies for the health benefits, not only for the fitness benefits, because they're different, they're different measures. You know, people can be very fit, but still, but still have physical issues that limit the quality of their life or the things that they're able to do. Okay, super love the analogy of watering all your parts. Like, I feel it's so easy to forget yourself, like your toes. And we see movement as like running or jumping, but we don't see movement as like the application of pressure on different parts of our body. When like K Katie in the full podcast, if you want to listen, she talks about kind of sleeping on the ground and the importance of like just the pressure being applied to your body and that this is movement, even walking barefoot. I've gotten the habit now every morning, walking to the beach in summer barefoot and walking across the stones, there's real pressure on your feet. And she talks about this is movement and that movement isn't just running or jumping or hanging or swinging from things. It can be the subtle things that we can do in everyday life. We should prevent these pains and alignments by using our bodies how they should be used as opposed to waiting until it's too late. Like 
use it or lose it is such a you know basic paradigm easier said than done i guess that's why trackers and other forms of modern ways to monetize or gamify exercise are so popular here's what katie has to say about our current sedentary culture and movement trackers Relatively speaking, the active people in our society move a tremendous amount, tremendous amount more than the not like the inactive. But you could find cultures of people who really move all day long for the things that they need. And it would make our 10,000 or plenty number of steps seem much less. So like it's just relative. So like if you grow up in a sedentary culture and you exercise regularly, like you're the mover, like you are the mover of the culture. But but compared to what the human body sort of needs to water all of its parts, it can be quite low. And an activity tracker is just measuring steps. It doesn't measure how many bends you do to your spine or twists or things that you might need to keep your spine flexible, which goes along and creates other issues later on. It doesn't, doesn't show if your arms are swinging at all during that movement. It doesn't show if you picked anything up or carried that weight. So it's just in in our recognition that <clears throat> our movement diets are so poor, it's very similar to um, just getting enough calories. At this point, we're struggling to get movement calories. The quality of movement of the, those calories is not even really being discussed, right? It's just like, just get 10,000 of any type of movement and that's a good start. And it is. And I don't mean to diminish that. It's just that we know enough about movement and other nutrients like diet to recognize that there's a broader picture. And I think for a while, the idea was like, if we just keep it simple for people, 10,000 steps, they'll do it. But I haven't seen that messaging, that simple messaging catch on. I've seen the opposite. I've seen the simple messaging of like, just exercise for 15 minutes a day or 20 minutes, you know, just 10,000 steps, just, just, just not catching on. So my, my approach is let, if you, <clears throat> if you learn how movement works, and how it can be more complex, chances are you might find the movements that will fit well in your life <clears throat> with greater ease. So yeah, you need to be moving all of your parts more. You need to be moving all of your parts more often. You need to be moving your whole person more often, excuse me. <clears throat> but it doesn't have to only fit into this container of exercise macronutrients and micronutrients are familiar in terms of food macronutrients being protein carbohydrate or fat micronutrients being is it vitamin a is it vitamin c is it vitamin k etc in terms of movement the concept of macro and micronutrients can seem complex and like i don't get it i can't apply it kathy really breaks this down and explains it in really digestible macro and micronutrients what are the, the, the kind of main macronutrients that we should be focusing on? Because at the moment, as you said, we're just focusing on calories, which is steps. Or in yeah. some cases, any type of movement will do. We'll take anything. Minutes. It can but, be but, minutes, right? It can be yeah. minutes of movement or steps. They're like gross or big, big ways of looking at movement. So yeah, the, well, the, the macronutrient, movement macronutrients that we're most used to would be like cardio strength and flexibility, right? Making sure that you get some of each of these categories for a balanced movement diet. You could, you could look at it this way. I think of micronutrients, the smaller, more dialed in pieces is that each of your parts, each of your hinges is being moved. So your micronutrients would be all, you know, like, can you lift up just your big toes? Like, right. That's a micronutrient vitamin, like lift your big toe. And can you lift your, everyone listening now is lifting their big toe or at least exactly, trying to exactly, yeah, right? of course. Can you spread your toes away from each other. You know, if you put your hands up, you can spread your fingers away yes, from each I other. Can. Your feet can do that as well. But, and like, that would be your feet getting the, 
getting the movement nutrition that they need. That would be one example. So you could think of that as micronutrients. I tend to think of macronutrients um, a little bit differently than those broad categories of cardio strength and flexibility. Um, I think of them more as like walking as a category, a macro macronutrient category. Like, can you walk? Can you um, get up and down off the floor? Use the floor as a place of taking rest or sitting. And if you can't do it right now, could you do something at least lower than your chair, right? Could you put a couple of cushions on the ground and get up and down from that slightly elevated ground? But it would be like your body's ability to negotiate really the terrain underfoot, which we used to, which, and like, we're, I'm not even talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago or tens of thousands of years ago. I'm talking about like our grandparents and our great grandparents. They moved a, a tremendous amount more than we move now, right? Just like everything is so convenient. We don't have to really build our own shelters anymore. The water shows up right in your house, your food's at the store. Like, you, like it's just in the last couple of generations, we've lost a tremendous amount of movement and we had already lost many before, but we've just really, it's exponential at this point, the movement that we're losing. This all sounds like a lot, especially with someone who's already doing exercise every day and keeping an eye on their health. However, it's much simpler than you think. Here are some examples of how you can fit more movement into your everyday life. My approach has been more in terms of stacking. So yes, you need to move all of your parts. Luckily, the act, many activities of daily living move all of our parts. So my approach is actually to do less to move you than to do more than move you. So like we are used to thinking about Today is a day I'm exercising my legs. Today is a day I'm exercising my arms. Today is a day I'm exercising my core, right? We're approaching it all because we're going through the exercise lens, like one part, what I'm doing balance today. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to do cardio. For, but I think of it more as, you know, if you walk home from the grocery store and you carry your groceries and you've got your dog with you, you're walking your dog, you've got your family with you, you're chatting with a friend, you're actually just doing one thing. You're just going to the grocery store, but you are carrying the thing that you need. Your arms are working. Your core is working. Your legs are working and you're hanging out with your dog or your friend or your family. So the way to get more movement is by choosing fewer tasks that meet more needs rather than trying to have so many tasks that only meet meet one need at a time. Like that's, that's where we're really struggling with time. It, you know, it's like, you cannot work on one body part at a time. You can't even really work on one area at a time, one hour a day or four hours a day. It's just, you, you, there's not, there's never going to be enough time to do it all. So we just have to think less of the parsing, pulling out just the steps, pulling out just the reps and thinking more about like, how can I use my body for daily life in a way that what's the reason? to be able to use my body well in the future. I mean, really, that's what we're talking about for physical fitness anyway, is the idea that you can physically do the tasks that you need to do now and in the future. Like there's an element of sustainability to it. You have to water your garden so it produces next time. Yes, in the moment, which is great, but also in the future as well, you have to nourish your tissues this way. Katie continues further into the podcast to discuss how, ways you can incorporate more movement into your life, such as getting off the bus a few stops early. If you are driving, parking a little further from where you are, so you walk, 
have meet-up-with friends in the park, sitting on the ground outside, trying to create a dynamic workstation, which in essence means getting on the ground more. And, you know, we try to do it a lot, and kind of ironically, I'm sitting in a a lovely, comfortable chair right now, but I am cross-legged, and we find the more you can work on the ground, it keeps you moving, keeps you more alert, you're engaged in your back, your hips, and I know it's better for me instinctively. Finally, we end, we talk with Katie on the subject of feet, something that we so seldom think about. I just say, imagine if you put your hands into stiff mittens, you know, if you put your children's hands into stiff mittens and then had them go out and explore the world, what their ability to sense things would be through their hands and how they would have to then move their wrists and elbows because they couldn't, they, they could still pick things up by bringing their mittens together and using maybe their shoulders, but they wouldn't be able to use all the fine motor of their fingers. Their wrists would not be supple, all these parts of their hands would not be nourished, they would have to go to some of the bigger joints of the shoulder and elbow to still accomplish things. Much in that same way, we've put foot mittens on at the earliest stage of trying to figure out balance and and what terrain feels like underfoot. And so our hips and knees have all had to do more work that they're not really necessarily um, there to do because the toes and the other muscles of the feet aren't able to participate in walking. Um, and, and so for many of us, and, and I started really, my first books were on feet because, because foot pain is re- very prevalent. I mean, it's prevalent. You, and you can think of like musculoskeletal, like, okay, foot pain, that's a big deal. You know, people are having more foot fractures and they have plantar fasciitis. But as an exercise scientist, I was more interested in the phenomenon of like, I think once you're over 50, for women at least, it's like one in four women can't walk. Katie continues with. How do you deal with the fact that, well, and this is a little tidbit, 25% of the number of muscles and bones in your body are from the ankle down, right? So it's not 25% of your mass, but it's like 25% of your levers. You know, all this important pieces that have really not been ever addressed and your feet really work the same way as your hands do mechanically. So the idea of look at all the things that our hands do and know that our feet were pretty much just like jumping up and down every every movement that we do. Most movements that we do will pass over the foot, but the foot itself has never been trained to carry the weight of the body. So it just, I started working with much older people when I was in graduate school. Like that was my interest of not so much younger fitness and movement at that stage, but what happens after a lifetime of moving this particular way? How do we end up moving later on? And and once I started understanding like, oh, our concepts of what aging is and what aging does to the body, has a lot more to do with how a sedentary culture ages than how the human body ages. And feet were such a big player of balance, ability to live on your own as you got older, strength, general mobility, and then being able, and self-efficacy, the idea that you could take care of yourself as you got older. And I was like, this all really flows through the foot. And even the really fit people I know, don't take care of their feet. Hey, everyone across the board, let's learn about feet because whether you're just starting or whether you've been very active for a long time, um, we're sort of all at the same place. What shoes are you wearing at the moment? You know, if it's appropriate or possible, please take off one of your shoes and have a look at your foot. 
Do the toes taper in or are they spread out wide? Can you actually isolate the movement of your, let's just, for example, your middle toe? Even me, who's been doing this for a long while, I shouldn't say even me as though like I'm something special, but when I try to move my middle foot, they all move. And it's kind of like, I can't isolate them. Uh, there's this friend that comes into the shop, Mary. She's an artist. And Mary wasn't born with arms. And Mary can literally, her feet are like hands. She is remarkable. Such an inspiration and such a reminder of the capacity of the human body to adapt. Do you have bunions or corns? I have a little bit of a bunion. It's, I'm following my mother's footsteps. When is the last time you walked on stones or stand? Were your feet sensitive to it? Was it comfortable? This leads us into the segment from the natural lifestyle coach, author and record-breaking barefoot endurance athlete, our friend, the legend, the hero, Tony Riddle. If you were ever going to join a cult, if you were ever looking for a cult leader, Tony Riddle is your man. He is phenomenal. Echoing Katie on the importance of your feet strength and being barefoot, Tony, being an endurance athlete, goes that bit further. Um, You have just as many senses in your feet as you do in your hands. So up to 200,000 extra receptors reside in your feet. So that's one thing. So the more information you put between you and your foot, as in the more rubber, um, the more desensitized that information becomes. So therefore the calculations that your movement brain can make are slightly compromised. Tony continues on the topic and the importance of feet with. And then we have mechanical actions, like the ankle has a heel rocker, like a heel rocker, an ankle rocker, and a forefoot rocker. You have three rocking actions of your foot. When you walk, you should be using applying all three. You go through the heel to the flat foot and off the big toe. When you run, that's one times your body weight. When you run, two times your body weight, you should be landing flat-footed like that to deal with the forces. That's how the springs of the feet and the muscles and the tendon and the bones operate. And then you go off of rocker number three, which is the toe box area of the foot. And then when you sprint, you go on rocker number three, the toe box, because it's no longer appropriate to land on your heel or flat-footed. So it's just that's just forces. And then we have understanding the mechanics of the foot and the shape of the foot and the anatomy of the foot. So you have 33 joints, 26 bones and 100 muscles, tendon, ligaments all together, right? And so for that foot to understand its role for all the joints and the bones and the joints and the bones and the tendons and the muscles to understand their role, the foot has to be in a foot shape, as in not a shoe shape, but a foot shape. And a shoe shape, if you look at most modern runners with cushioning that raises the heel, pushes the foot to the front of the shoe because it has a heel, right? So it already pushes the foot forward. And the toe box is normally quite narrow. So if you were to draw uh, with a marker... So, so toe box refers to just... To the toe area of the shoe, yeah. So if you draw around your foot, um, you should notice that the foot, the toe box is wider than the heel. Quite wide, quite yeah, there's quite a bit of difference between the toe box and the heel of your foot, the heel being the most narrow point. If you look at most modern runners, for aesthetics, the toe box is often more narrow than the heel. So you have to be able to do something with your foot to get it in there, which usually means putting the toes, compromising toes, squishing all the toes together. Now, there's a danger there that the great toe, which there should be a gap between your first toe and your second toe like this, right? Your great toe is four times denser and thicker than all the other toes. It has a role to play within the three rocking actions, right? So when we land on the hill, we roll through and then we go off the big toe. It has a leverage capability, a pivoting capability and an anchor, right? So every one of those rolling actions that I've demonstrated, every rocking action, you should be going off on the big toe. When you create a narrow toe box, the big toe gets pushed in. 
And people will be familiar with that if they look at someone that's been wearing shoes for many, many years and they grow something very peculiar here and it's known as a bunion, right? A bunion is almost like another toe that has to grow because we don't have the big toe anymore. We've lost this and we, we still need leverage. So we start to then roll in and that's like um, language about supronation and overpronation, you know? Overpronation, I don't have a big toe anymore. It's not there. It's been pushed over towards the other toes. It is no longer in its location to be able to work as a leverage point. So if that's missing, the ankle will start to roll in and we call that like overpronation. And the overpronation that occurs then in the ankle then creates overpronation in the knee and overpronation upstream. So it's the very foundation of it all should be the super strong foundation being the foot. And so the way to get that back is to rewild the feet, try and get the feet back into their appropriate alignment. You can use things like toe separators or toga, which is like yoga for your feet. The legend is Tony Riddle has a fascinating background, as you might imagine. He was born with club feet and spent many years fixing them with the help of doctors, which led him into being super physically athletic, being always climbing, pushing his body to the limits. After school, he joined the army, had a negative experience, which resulted in being discharged. He soon found himself working in the PT world, that's personal training world, uh, which eventually became a Pilates teacher. In the early years, it was just blowing up in popularity where he also met his now wife. It was through Pilates where he was introduced to other characters in the movement world looking to push the boundaries. This next excerpt is how he got into barefoot running. And if you do want to learn more about Tony's phenomenal background, do check out our original podcast with him. He's such a hero. This amazing track and field coach, his name was Professor Nicholas Romanov, and he was a track and field coach in the Soviet era. And as a track and field coach, he, 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 he re- recognized there was a specific posture that everyone went to when they were running and he named it the pose. And it's essentially when we have the appropriate shape to deal with the forces that are involved with running. So ground reaction forces like gravity and ground reaction forces, and that it would then make you more efficient and minimize the risk of injury. So we were like, wow, this stuff's amazing. And then I, I studied really and become a main mentor, but I also become one of the only six pose movement specialists there were on the planet. Still am, right? But it went beyond running. It meant you could have this application, this, this lens of how to assess all movement and minimize the risk of injury and make it more efficient. And, and so what were we doing? We realized that the running style he was looking at was the observation that you can make in nature, these amazing like, indigenous tribes that are famous for running, right? Persistent hunting. And they had this specific posture, but what made it difference between the difference between what Nicholas was seeing and what the indigenous tribes were doing, the indigenous tribes were barefoot, whereas Nicholas had this posture, but he hadn't made the, the connection between being barefoot and the posture. So suddenly wow. he was teaching in footwear and we were like, oh, wow, look at this. If we remove the footwear, we get, we get a completely different um, relationship because then we're opening up the senses on the ground as well as building the superstructure. And that's kind of the, the explosion of barefoot running, the actual technique of barefoot running. So we were like pioneers around that. And then started to see, well, if that's running, what about all the other movements? What's, what are all the other movements that we can be doing? Tony has focused much of his career on getting the urbanite uh, out of us. And by urbanite, he often refers to us like getting us out of the human zoo. Uh, as in many, many of us, or most of us that live in the Western world who sit in chairs, drive cars, sit at desks, use most of modern day convenience uh, most of the day. Um, and he kind of wants to get us to rewild based off the learnings from indigenous tribes. And like Kathy or Katie describes, 
trying to ensure us that we're using our bodies in the ways that we're meant to be used to prevent injury, to live a healthier, more independently and more fulfilled life. Tony's description of the benefits of rewilding our bodies are as follows. There's so much to it. Let's say, um, let's look at the Hadza for a moment, right? So the Hadza sit for 10 and a half hours a day. Like we're, we're the Hadza tribe, right? So we're led to believe that we, um, we, we are sitting as the new smoking, right? We sit for 10 and a half hours, right? It's really compromising. It's just the way we sit. So the difference in those two experiences, one is indigenous and, and one is an urbanite experience, right? A modern human experience in a modern environment. And it has a chair. Whereas if you interact with the ground through various different rest positions, each one of those rest positions is like a micronutrient or a micro skill of the macro skill of standing up. Standing up is a micro skill of the macro skill of walking. Walking is a micro skill of the macro skill of running, right? So we have kind of, they're, they're, they're always in this relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship between interacting with the ground and how you stand. So by interacting with the ground, we get to nourish and, and mobilize and understand body weight. But there's also a metabolic cost for being on the ground. So if, um, if I squat, my body weight is still on my feet. It's the equivalent of me standing up. It's the same body weight. So I'm always still standing, but I'm in a squat position, which is restful. I'm not talking like the reps and set squats, which is an exercise in the West. I'm talking about the restful position. It's a rest position. So if anything, if you were to get a squat, try and get it to a rest where it feels comfortable, where you could literally do anything in it, including poop. That's how they designed it. This is a flat, this is a flat footed squat. Like just yeah, and the flat, how, how, well, it's just the origins. It's it's how we learn to stand. If you look at a toddler, they have these multiple different movements on the ground. and go, wow, look at them. But that's how we that's how we move if we don't get compromised by the chair, because how indigenous people move on the ground, just like the toddler, from one rest position to the next. And then we get to the prize position, which is a squat. And then from the squat, we can stand up. So someone asked me, how do you run for 10 hours a day? Right? Well, firstly, learn to stand for 10 hours a day because that's an endurance event. But beneath that, mix it up with squatting and standing because between the two, squatting nourishes the ankle joint, the knee joint, the hip hip joint relationships for running. It gives you the appropriate dorsiflexion um, in the ankle, which is necessary for when you land underneath the body. It primes all the lower extremities, primes all the loading points of the feet, primes the hips, builds the posture and the posture for when you're standing up. So it's all within it, you know, and that's the difference. That's just that's just a micro movement of how it looks in nature compared to how it looks in the modern environment. Like, isn't that crazy? Like these days, we only look at the importance of squat and when it comes to gym workouts or when yoga postures. And like for many people, they don't realize that like a squat is a rest position. Most people feel they're doing yoga when they're squatting. And it's something like even back a few years ago when we were over um, in London with Tony um, he was trying to squat every day for 30 minutes and every time he'd squat down he'd set a timer and he just over the course of the day he really tried to get just really work on his squat because he found this to be the basic fundamental kind of pivotal movement uh, that was so important to so many others. For years Tony dealt with clients from as he describes a compromised environment are seated on chairs, culture, issues with knees, the hips, the ankles, and the neck. All of these, he realized, were reversible by taking practices back to the ground, getting people to squat for 30 minutes. Wonder how many are squatting now while hearing this. I am 
not. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair, ironically. Maybe give it a try and let us know how you get on. Start with one minute a day and see if you can build it up. Even a simple thing that I do with the kids is squat while you're brushing your teeth. Really simple, really basic. It doesn't have to be in one sitting. You could do it each time you put the kettle on or while you watch TV or say a chat on the phone. As Kathy or Katie often talks about, stacking your exercises. While you squat, if you do want to make it more hardcore, face your two feet forward, bring them in closer together for a deeper squat. And if you can get to the holy grail, my son Ned, uh, he's five now, can squat and almost get his ass on the ground. That's the goal. He is my idol in terms of the squat. Tony continues with the results of squatting and moving to the ground more so you know not only do you gain the mobility but also what you start to do which is really interesting we start to rewire and reignite let's say the very structures that made us who we are today like the sapiens so the big powerful glutes that we have came through from being bipedal but also what came before being bipedal were all the rest positions on the ground that enable us to stand up so if you want to get you know the physiology that nature as uniquely assigned for you, let's say, right? Then get your movement back to the way it was in nature because that's how you get natural physiology. Other than that, we can end up with areas that might be more active than others, areas that might be more stagnant than others. So it's about igniting that more innate system. And once we get that, we get the wild kind of physiology that much more and, and much more adaptive. Tony echoes Katie in incremental movement and the importance of it. Don't focus on that one dedicated time you gave for exercise, but keep moving throughout the day to ensure yourself you're healthy and you're in your body and you're connecting in with your inner mammal. Finally, not only has Tony embodied all things movement related, he also is an advocate for nasal breathing. Echoing much of what the mighty Patrick McKellen says, he's gone as far as to adopt this in his running and his famously run both barefoot and nasal breathing, the three bare, biggest peaks uh, and bare peaks uh, in the UK. Phenomenal feat, absolutely incredible. Even we ran part of Tony's run when he ran from the bottom of the UK all the way to the top where he ran. I think it was 30 miles every day, barefoot, that's no shoes, for 30 days. And we met him at Manchester's and ran with him. And uh, we were running on pebbles. Like, it was a hard terrain, right by an estuary or a canal. Beautiful setting. And, like, Tony being typically hardcore, Tony, you go, Tony, are you hurting? Where are you hurting? He goes, in my head. And it's just like, Tony, you are so hardcore. Uh, but he did it, and he's just a remarkable character. And even at one point, like, he broke part of his foot, and yet he still did it. So, um, yeah, Tony's another level. Uh, when he started running and nasal breathing, he hadn't taken it serious until he realized. I hadn't kind of taken it so seriously. I just, oh, let's just nasal breathe. And I realized I was, getting, I was more efficient. That's what I just knew. It just felt better, you know? It's like, oh, this is much better. I feel, I feel much more efficient for it. And then I'd go off in like meditations and I'd find that I was suddenly off there somewhere because of just the rhythms of it. When it came to Three Bear Peaks, it was more, it was less, um, more about performance. I had to really tune in because I was, I was aiming for a record, right? Trying to beat this nine days, 11 hours and 18 minutes. And I wanted to beat that. So kind of like how to do that so it really meant kind of refining stuff it meant doing more mileage and training so i had to do two marathons a day I'll give you an example it's two marathons a day for nine days plus three mountains that i ran barefoot right? and so it every second counts with stuff like that right so it's all right okay i'm gonna get my food on point and then i'm gonna get this on point but if i'm out there for two marathons sometimes i might not be able to eat so let's try and see if how long we can go without eating and I started to really go down the rabbit hole with the nasal breathing. I did exactly that. I taped my mouth up 
and I started to go out and just do the mileage and you know and it started off with the t- with the tape with the tape on your tape, mouth going running tape and I'd gone from um I'd gone from doing 10 minute I'd gone from eight minute miles mouth breathing and nasal breathing whatever I was doing whatever the breathing was I didn't really pay much attention I might have even been nasal breathing right and a bit of mouth breathing or doing whatever but this was more right precise it's about precision now so I take my mouth up at the very beginning and I found that I was uh, I'd gone from eight minute miles down to 10 minute miles like quite a shift and so it's trusting the process. You have to really trust the process. For most runners, it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not losing my mind a minute per mile. But it's the same as technique. Once If you refine it, you know, the rewards come. And you want to be able to run forever. That's the longevity. You don't want to be broken and just trying because you don't want to lose your minute miles, right? And not change anything. It should be about refinement. Life's experience is about refining things, right? So running is very much like that for me. And the nasal breathing was that. And it was like, right, let's tape it up. Let's trust the process, respect it, be patient, and it will be, right? exactly how it has to be and I found then I got back down uh, down to eight minute miles but something really remarkable was happening within that is I wasn't needing fuel and water you know I'd go out and do a marathon before breakfast like just wake up and as you do do, like ability drills on the floor get back in the posture mobilize the feet do some jumping drills to rewild everything in a way the form and then off I'd go and I'd go and do eight minute miles again come home right now I'm going to have some water and now I'm going to eat. And then when you start to do when what I've been researching lately is that, you know, you lose 42% of your hydration, your water through vapor, through mouth breathing. So we're all like chronically dehydrated if we're walking around mouth breathing, right? No wonder we have to drink so much water all the time. We've also gone from like a liter to two liters to three liters, the recommendations, it keeps going up. And what, we're losing 42% of water through mouth breathing. That's insane, right? And then you have the metabolism, but there's something else that's happening with nasal breathing. So you have to remember that it stimulates nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is associated with vasal dilation and bronchial dilation. So you lower the blood pressure, you lower heart rate, but also you become much more efficient at absorption with oxygen through the lungs, right? The bronchial dilation. So there's, it's multifaceted. Tony really walks the walk he preaches. He has curated a world for himself and his family to be as natural as possible, with no furniture in the house, his kids free to climb, crawl, and explore the movement of their bodies. No nappies and the babies getting in touch with their instincts and their natural side. Even the idea of no nappies might sound crazy. Um, My brother Dara and his wife Yeshem, they have a son, Fionn now, he's now 11, maybe maybe he's 12 months, sorry Fionn, maybe he's 15 months now at this time of recording. But, uh, they raised Fionn without nappies. And like, to me, we use nappies with our kids and we used, um, you know, reusable ones, the ones that you wash uh, as much as we could. And Fionn kind of like at six months was already using a potty. Like it was pretty phenomenal. So um, I- I've seen it work and it's kind of blown my mind. And Sarah sitting beside me here is pregnant. He's going to give it a shot. Go Sarah Fawcett. Uh, she calls their child Mush at the moment. <laughs> you can hear Sarah giggle in the background. So, To end this episode, we thought we would take things one step further on this journey of alternative hacks to optimizing your health. We begin with air, move to our relationship with our body's movement, gravity, body's movement, gravity in the ground. And now let's end with earth herself. The importance of soil. Again, let me start with a question. Would you eat pasta or rice that has been boiled in water, contaminated in chemicals? I'm guessing the answer is no. If someone gave you a veg from a contaminated soil, would you eat it? I'm guessing no. What happens to our bodies when we eat vegetables grown from unhealthy soil? Next up, we've taken excerpts 
sorry, struggling with this word, uh, from our episode with the extraordinary Zach Bush, MD. Jack, Zach is a legend. He's a friend. He's one of the few humans I've met on this planet that I would equate and put in the same category as Albert Einstein. I've never met anyone that can actually just stream like incredible information, but like he takes it one step further and like takes it into wisdom. Recently, we were at a an event that Vivo put on in Richmond in London. And Zach came up to speak and there was before that there was um, a friend, Jasmine Hemley, was doing a sound bath and Zach came on stage and I was kind of like, I've heard Zach speak loads and Zach is amazing and I just wasn't sure what he was going to talk about. And he took it to a whole other level, like, and he really spoke from the heart and at one point he started crying and it was just, it was one of those incredible talks that you hear where like, my heart was singing after it. And I know that sounds strange to say my heart was singing, but it was my heart that felt open after him talking. And he did this cool exercise at the end of it. He said like, okay, we're at this event and we're all going to be sharing a meal together and you're going to have loads of conversations with people. So I ask you, instead of having the usual conversation around, how are you doing? What do you do? What blah, 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 blah. He said, let's ask everyone, how, how are you in this moment? And Try not to answer with your usual kind of story of who you were. Try to talk about your fears. Talk about your vulnerabilities. Try to be open. And it was like, what ensued was like a remarkable evening of like conversation that was deep. It was profound. It was like unifying. And it was just, we left feeling like, like little kids. Like it was like, that was the most exciting night I've had in so long. And before we arrived, there was me, Dave and Sam. We'd got a, a taxi out to the event and we arrived late. And the three of us, just before we got out of the taxi, it was like, let's have the best night ever, lads. And we said it jokingly, but when we left at the end of it, it was like, that was probably one of the best nights we've had in a long while. So it was incredible. Anyway, Zach is phenomenal. So if you don't know Zach, he's a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine. Physician, fancy word or American word for doctor. Endocrinology, hospice care and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil health, food systems and regenerative future. He did a cool um, documentary called farm something anyway check it out uh, for those of you who have not heard of the microbiome it's the colony of highly important bacteria so it's bacteria archaea fungi and yeast in our gut or in our like the lower part of our intestine and uh, many people think that you know humans were fully autonomous uh, creatures but 95 percent of our dna is actually microorganisms and only five percent of it's human we have approximately 100 trillion microorganisms in our body and only 10 trillion human cells so we are hugely and our health is hugely at the mercy of these microorganisms also for those of you who don't know 70 percent of your immune system exists in your gut so these microorganisms and another friend um dr megan rossi she often refers to like your microorganisms it's like having a pet a pet that helps you keep healthy strong and like so much of natural ecology the more diverse an environment or an ecosystem the more resilient and the more healthy it is so similarly with nature a more diverse um you know environment is more resilient and similarly as humans the more diversity of bacteria in our microbiome the more stronger the more resilient the more healthy we are so here we have zach on how the discovery of the microbiome as the largest most su surprising paradigm shift in scientific thought that we've seen in human history on how our microbiome health is directly linked to the soil this is one of the most extraordinary paradigm shifts you know, revolutions in scientific thought, scientific paradigms that we've seen in human history when we start to talk about the microbiome. I, I can compare this to maybe 2000 years ago when Pythagoras discovered that the earth was not flat, it was actually a, a ball floating in space. And it made no sense to anybody at the time. It was obvious if you were on the bottom of the ball, you would fall off the ball. So 
there was there was just no sense of of understanding the earth as a sphere and that revolution still remains right we have a large vibrant flat earth society 2000 years later that's convinced that the earth is still flat and so when you have these paradigm shifts in science there remains huge factions and huge huge uh discordance between the the new discovery and the the paradigm in which the current environment will practice or or think and so i'd say maybe 1600 years later after pythagoras we see you know the discovery of the telescope and suddenly we're told that earth is not at the center of the universe which was very disruptive to science disruptive to perhaps more importantly religion and that started to dawn on us that we might not be the penultimate creation of god and we it was disruptive across the board and certainly if you walk into a lot of conservative religious environments today they recoil from the idea that we're not the penultimate invention of, of you know of god here and that there may be something more intelligent than us in the universe is hard for us to handle still but now we come to this revolution of the microbiome. And what happened is we moved from, you know, geometry 2000 years ago to the telescopes 400 years ago to really gen genomic sequencing as the new technologic breakthrough in the last 30 years that's allowed us to start to decode the origin of life and specifically the origin of life within us. We really believed that the DNA that we inherit from mom and dad were the the template for life they, they would predict all of the diseases we would get they would predict the health we would have they would predict the color of our eyes all of these things were really programmed hardwired into that dna we got from mom and dad that was the the status quo starting in the 1950s when we discovered dna initially and all of this but then we, the genetic sequencers came into the picture and by 1996 we realized that the human only had 20,000 genes this was extremely disappointing because we already knew that the flea had 30,000 genes. And so to find out we were two thirds as good as a, a flea at the genetic level was really dismal news. And what has then had to be born out of that information is that we are actually epigenetically programmed by our environment. And so the bodies and health that we build today are not in, actually inherited from mom and dad. It is actually the input of the microbiome, the air we breathe, the genomics of our food, the genomics of those that we spend time with, we are all programming one another to become who we are today. And amazingly, as we start to decode the input into that genetic plasticity of the human environment, we find that the microbiome, the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, and even the viruses in, in all of their uh, complexity, and they're not part of the microbiome, they're, they're just a genetic transfer system between species. But in all of this, we find that the human is this tiny, tiny percentage of life within us. And so this is the revolution we are now in, is that to be human is to be an ecosystem. And to find that the human cell is not at the center of human health is really overwhelming. And it, it, it's no wonder that in this pandemic that we're currently finishing up, we are stuck in an old narrative. We're stuck in a narrative of viruses are attacking us and we know viruses are not attacking us at the science level. We've known for 30 years that viruses actually built humans. More than 50% of the genes that I have inherited from my parents were inserted into the human and the mammalian genome millions of years back. And so the origin of, of mammals a few million years back, the origin of humanity 200,000 brief years ago 
all of that became possible because of the gain of function allowed by viruses and their ability to always be looking for adaptation and biodiversification of life on Earth. And so this is the revolution we're in. And so now if we back into your question, which was, what's the relationship between antibiotics in the form of herbicides and pesticides and all of this in our food? It's literally undermining the very vitality, the very heart and center of the biology of what it means to be human, to consume antibiotics through our food, to consume these chemicals that destroy the soil systems and therefore the food system and therefore our gut microbiome that should be the organic garden that would not only birth the nutrients, but actually birth the genetic information from our microbiome and the rest that would transform our bodies today into the vitality we have. And so a chemical herbicide-based chemical agricultural system is the fundamental root cause of the, the extinction event that we now find ourselves in. Wow, Zach is phenomenal. He just has this incredible ability to synthesize fields of study that aren't necessarily related um, and tying them together so perfectly you know when Zach speaks like at least what we find is it's you can just sit back and listen in awe and just marvel with his ability to um, articulate on certain different topics and often unrelated topics or what appear to be unrelated topics you know Zach as a doctor or physician against the will of nutritionists and other medical professionals started looking at his patient's diet after realising the importance of the microbiome and started prescribing a plant-based diet in order to get to the root of his patient's ailments. However, at the time he realized a lot of his patients weren't improving. The kale that had all these natural defense mechanisms or anti-inflammatory products were not providing the benefits science would have expected. So he dug a little deeper. Kale was literally the, the, the vegetable that took me into the whole you know, food systems. And I found out very quickly that kale was no longer carrying the medicine that we thought it was, that, that it was missing the alkaloids that were the anti-inflammatories and everything else that we would look to all of the cruciferous vegetables for was lacking in this kale that was grown through conventional methods. And as I dove into soil science, me and uh, a number of colleagues, uh, John Gilday was a PhD at, at University of Virginia, brilliant uh, biochemist. Uh, he really did the heavy lifting on understanding the impact of glyphosate or Roundup within the kale. And what we came to realize is that this chemical that has become ubiquitous in our farming industry was blocking the enzyme pathways by which the medicine ends up in the food. And so starting in the 1990s, we started pouring this chemical in massive quantities into our food system, deleting out the medicine within our food. And for the first time in 2000 years, Pythagoras would be wrong. Let thy food be thy medicine was his, uh, I'm not Pythagoras, uh, Hippocrates. And Hippocrates, uh, you know, was right for all those years until we suddenly utilized chemical farming to delete that medicine out of the food. And then on top of that, the same chemical that would remove the, the medicine would destroy our barriers, our boundary systems for our immune system. And so glyphosate or Roundup destroys the, the tight junctions between our gut microbiome and our nutrients and our immune system. And so with the dissolving of that, that barrier, everything starts to overwhelm the human immune system. And so the kale that I was feeding my patients was lacking the anti-inflammatories in the medicine and was acting as an inflammatory agent because the insoluble fiber in, in the kale should have never gotten into their immune system. But because it was carrying so much glyphosate in it, it was destroying that gut lining and opening it up. And so in a bizarre way, these patients were finding that I, you know, we could take what should be one of the, the most powerful anti-cancer compounds in the world 
through a conventional farm system, nutrient chemical you know, exposure, we could turn it into a toxin. And that was the sobering moment when I realized that uh, I would never solve the problem as a physician. I was going to have to get involved in the food system. Further into the episode, Zach breaks down how we absorb nutrients from food and again, the issue of chemical farming. And so when we think about kale or we think about, you know, needing calcium in the bone, we need to stop thinking about macronutrients and we need to start thinking about where is the most energetic sources for these things and how do we get energy transfer to happen? So it's no longer how much calcium can we get into the bone, it's how much energy we can get into the bone. And that changes the discussion because drinking a glass of milk actually will never get to the bone if you're sitting still. And so you've got to start to get, it turns out, of course, kale has a ton of calcium in it and things like that. All of your greens are great sources of calcium, but even those will not get their nutrients into bone unless the bone is demanding energy exchange, which means it needs exercise and movement. And, and so instead of believing that suddenly that kale or glass of milk turns into bone, we need to think more broadly about what the concept of nutrition. Nutrition ultimately is about the movement of energy through living systems. And to do that, you need to begin moving and you need to be in movement or a dance with this complex microbiome within you. And this is, again, the revolution is that, you know, here we thought human health was super important, but we find out that you know, 10x the human cells in your body are the, are the microbes, the bacteria and fungi in your gut and skin and organ systems. And then 10x that, yeah, 14 quadrillion now are the mitochondria inside your cells. And so when you start to think about health, you realize I need to be totally integrated into a diverse microbiome all of the time. And I need to be nurturing those tiny little cells. And of course, the glyphosate and Roundup that we talked about is an antibiotic and potently kills everything from mitochondria to the gut bacteria that would transfer all of that light energy from sunshine to plant to human. And so we are dissolving through our chemical agriculture, the very mechanisms of energy transfer of life. We end here with Zach and move on a final note to the wonderful Dr. B, also known as Dr. Will Bolshevich. That's Polish pronunciation. I think in America it's called Bolshevich or Bolshevich, uh, a.k.a. Dr. B anyway, an award-winning gastroenterologist, a legend, a hero. Again, someone that has the ability to make complex things sound digestible and simple. So Will speaks with wisdom. Internationally recognized good health expert and New York Times bestselling author of two books, The Fiber Fueled, and the other book is known as Fiber Fueled Cookbook. Dr. B echoes Zach in the importance of soil and its connection to human health, but takes things one step further. Well, ultimately, soil health translates into human health because we can't be healthy humans if we don't have a healthy food supply. And the health of our food supply is is directly contingent on having healthy soil in order to grow that food supply. Even if hypothetically you were eating animal products, those animal products still are derived from the health of what that animal is eating, which again is derived back from the food supply. So ultimately, the foods, I'm sorry, the soil from the soil. So ultimately, at the end of the day, the soil, it all comes back to this one place, like soil translates into healthy food, which translates into healthy humans. Um, but it's quite fascinating that what you mentioned in the very beginning of what you were saying about sticking your hands into the soil and feeling something, feeling like there's something there, right? There's actually research to back that up. You, you, what you were feeling has actually been scientifically proven. They did a study where they took a group of people. They didn't ask them to do gardening. They just put their hands in soil 
for two weeks. <laughs> Not for two weeks. They didn't story. spend two weeks with their hands in the soil. It was just like for a little bit over two weeks. A little bit, a little bit every day for two weeks. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, a little bit every day for two weeks. And what they discovered is that sticking their hands down into the dirt, these people actually had improvement in their gut microbiome. Now, is it is it the soil microbes or is it something about the connection between us and our environment that puts us at ease? And when we are at ease, we are actually enhancing the health of our microbiome. It's hard to separate and disentangle those two things. They're both potentially a part of it, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what happened is that they stuck their hands into soil, you know, once a day for two weeks and they improved the health of their microbiome. We recently got to spend time with one of our heroes, uh, Charles Dowding, an amazing human being who's kind of really been a pioneer in the No Dig movement. We happened to be over in Somerset. We got to go meet him in his uh, market garden. It was 28 degrees. We got to spend about five or six hours cooking a meal with him, shooting a video. And just like, you know, those moments where you get to like sit and really hang and there's like peace and silence in the air. And it was really like soulful. And we really had a wonderful conversation. And Charles often kind of talks about the importance of soil and not washing his veg. And this is only something that he recently got into. And he talks about how much benefit he's felt from it. So like when he picks a carrot from the ground, previously he used to go and wash it and wash all the soil off it. And now picks a carrot from the ground and kind of just rubs it, rubs any of the kind of evident soil in his jeans or whatever he's working on and then eats it. And he finds just getting this little bit of soil, he finds to be hugely beneficial from his soil. And he just kind of got this from instinct uh, we explained this to dr b so gastroenterologist and he agreed and even those people that add soil to their diet this might seem extreme and as zach so prominently highlighted not any soil will do the quality of the soil is integral to the quality of our health if the soil is chemically farmed or according to charles doubting over farm so as in rotated to break up the mycelium network or kind of where the carbon's released from the soil the quality is compromised and in the case of chemical farming it's even dangerous to our health so just to summarize, we covered loads in this podcast, and I think so much of the true wealth in life is where different disciplines meet. And if you look at most ecosystems, it's where the river meets the meadow or the meadow meets the forest. These are the most diverse, the most creative aspects of nature. And I think similarly, podcast mashups like this, which the wonderful Sarah Fawcett has helped bring together, really can provide so much learning to us. So many things we covered today, breath. Importance of nasal breathing. Just, this is just a summary and the short letter, just to remind you. So the more you can nasal breathe, the better. If you can and want to take it one step further, tape your mouth, not in a kinky way, going to sleep. And if you want to take it one step further, you can be like my twin David, who's leading the charge here in terms of me and him. Uh, he's got a chin, sl- chin strap just to really work on nasal breathing and if you have someone snoring in your house or that struggles with asthma this might help uh, breathing regularly if you can uh, and you want to try it again try nasal breathing while running it's hard to do it's something that can be quite meditative but if you tony often says if you can slow it down and just kind of slowly adapt to it you'll use less moisture as in you won't want to drink as much and it's just much more efficient in terms of your energy um, I loved Kathy or Katie's um, approach of moving from exercise into movement and seeing that it's part of the basic human experiences that we have to move. And the more we can do it, the more we can water our whole body and think of movement not only as like walking or jumping or running, but even going barefoot or sleeping on kind of a more rougher surface or just sitting on the ground or just little things, the more we're going to feel better consistently. Barefoot, I think, is so important. We recently went and... 
we're with Zach Bush and I asked, we did an Insta Live with Zach and I asked Zach, just, Zach, can you say three tips for health and happiness? And I didn't expect it. I thought he was going to go much different and he just spoke about the importance of being barefoot in nature and that this is not only really important for grounding us but it's exposing us to greater diversity of microorganisms which will make our microbiome more resilient and make us healthier as well as connecting us and reminding us that we are mammals so if you can try to spend time barefoot if you want to take it one step further we wear barefoot shoes we love to wear vivo shoes we think they're great just because you'll feel more from the earth recently i've gotten the habit of when the weather's warm i walk down to the beach and back from the beach every morning and barefoot and when I'm wearing shoes I'm just walking but when you're walking barefoot you're much more conscious of what you're walking on and you actually see your experience of the earth is different like often the yellow lines that we kind of walk past or drive past so much when you walk in them barefoot they're spongy they're soft they feel different when you walk in these bumpy bits like wow that feels kind of like reflexology so anyway this is something I like and you might like it too if you can squat, so good for your, as Tony calls it, your basic locomotion. Really, really important. Squat more. Squat for president. Uh, and last and final thing, we talked about the importance of soil health. That often soil, like if you look at modern day, this is just my last little rant, but often when you look at modern day economics and you ask people what's the most important thing in an econ- economy, most people will say GDP or they might say technology or they might go into big pharma or maybe it's tech companies. And seldom is agriculture it's seen as like a basic kind of layer of industry but at the center of all economies is food without food we will we won't be able to persist and food has been linked that as our topsoil has eroded it's definitely affected economic prosperity there's been studies in the u.s where they actually kind of they compared economic prosperity and education with topsoil and as topsoil has eroded economic prosperity has declined and as has our degree of education so i think topsoil is really at the basics even recent study i I did when we recently wrote our new book the veg box i was doing some research on it and i was trying to find recent figures that i remember in the central midwest of the u.s as i think topsoil decreased by two percent the cost was about two to three billion to this one state so it really does tie topsoil erosion with economic prosperity which just links to our overwhelm overall health and now recently with us starting a farm we're so aware of like the benefits of soil a friend Moncon McGann often says that sourdough is the new Prozac and I think one step further I think getting your hands in the soil and gardening and farming is like literally plugging yourself into nature where you actually feel part of nature it kind of brings you down it down regulates you just feel even I can't remember who it was was talking about that there's actually science. It was Will. Dr. Will was talking about even the science now proving that by getting your hands in the soil, it can be so beneficial for our mental health. Anyway, I've gone off on a long one here. If you're still listening, thank you. I love you. I really appreciate it. Uh, anyway, really hope you um, found a lot of joy, meaning, practical application from this podcast. Massive shout out to the wonderful Sarah Fawcett. She's put so much work into producing this and um, I love it and we love it and I hope you love it too. So um, without further ado, wishing you a wonderful day. Um, Here's to being more health. Here's to exploring the diverse, the variety and the wonder that is life and to enjoying the small things. Wishing you a wonderful morning, day, evening, night, whatever it is. Lots of love. Bye. Bye, 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 bye.